Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Well, good afternoon. Uh, We are glad to uh, be before you today. And uh, as you can tell, we're taking a bit of a break from the series, I Feel Some Type of Way. But uh, this word today really does relate to a topic in which many of us feel some type of way. So we're still kind of in the same theme. In case you haven't heard, there's something called an election coming up in 30 days. Uh, You may have just missed some of the ongoing surrounding headlines over the last several weeks. But in case you haven't, the question, how should my faith impact the way I think about and engage in politics may have come up. On Tuesday, millions watched the first presidential debate of 2020. I was one of them, regrettably, and what I saw over the next 90 minutes was, was very troubling. And it resonated with one commentator, Jake Tapper, who said, this was a hot mess inside a dumpster fire, inside a train wreck. This was the worst debate I have ever seen. In fact, it wasn't even a debate. It was a disgrace. And it's primarily because of President Trump. Now, These comments were just mild compared to what other commentators had to say about what this was, but it was universally panned as an expression of the the bitter bickering and and divisiveness of what has come to be known as how we engage in politics in 2020. And, And it's the type of thing that causes an angst or an apathy that says, you know what, I don't even wanna get involved. And the words of Jesus were never more needed because you see, Jesus does have something to say about how we engage in politics. But many of us often fail to ask the question, what should inform our voting process? How how should I respond to this current political moment that maybe is out of step or out of line with everybody around me who agrees with me? And you realize three quarters of us work in environments in which we work with people who have a different political party with different political beliefs. And I know I've seen and experienced the toxicity of this type of partisanship, even in ministry. In 2012, I was leading a ministry in a team in Indiana that was predominantly black, but we were working in a predominantly white Christian office. We were just one small team in a vast, vast broader spread. And a couple days after the reelection of President Barack Obama, one of these staff members in the broader ministry, who had been a friend to me personally and in the ministry, sent out an email on the massive uh, list. And he said, hey, I'm trying, I don't understand how any Christian could vote for someone like Barack Obama, so I'd like to take you out to lunch, and hey, P.S., because you voted for Obama, I know you like free lunches, so it's on me. Now, my wife got a hold of this before I did, so she calls me up and was like, yo, have you seen this email? And I'm like, no, what are you talking about? And so I look at it, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened. And so, you know, I start to reach out to this, you know, brother, and I'm like, yo, we, we got to talk and try to explain why this was inappropriate and why the, the fact that 
it, it, it didn't matter who you chose to vote for, but the idea that you would say that somehow a, a Christian couldn't go the other way is, pro, is intensely problematic. I spoke to him for four hours, and at the end of the, co- the conversation, he hadn't budged, and I was super discouraged and just wondering, what is it about his perspective that said that the way that I frame reality says that my faith and my politics are totally in step with each other to the point that one party represents God and the other one represents the devil. And this reminds me of when Jesus was talking to Pontius Pilate. You see, Jesus had been arrested on charges that were somewhat spiritual, but in, in, a, in a bigger sense, political, because the, the Romans didn't care about a, a squabble that Jews were having about their Messiah or not. But he was brought up on charges of insurrection, that he was claiming to be a king. And so Pilate, who was you know, appointed governor by Caesar, brings Jesus in to have a little uh, inquiry of Jesus to, to investigate this and interrogate him. And so Jesus is asked by Pilate, are, are you the king of the Jews? Like, are, is, this, is what they're saying about you true? And, and, and it's, Jesus is not really participating in the uh, little interaction like he should. He said, you know, who told you that I was a king? And, 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 and maybe my kingdom is different. So this is what Jesus said. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be de- delivered to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. You see, what he was trying to say is, Pilate, I, I know you understand the language of Rome, and, and what Rome did, it was an empire that continued to expand itself, not because uh, people were like, yo, we want to be part of Rome, but because they came in with troops, and because they had might and were stronger than anything else, because they had might, they were considered to be right. And so he's like, yo, don't, don't get it twisted. Like, like, yeah, I'm a king, but not like the way that you think of kingdoms. Because it don't, if I wanted to, I could send a whole group of angels to just clear this whole situation up. But because of the way I'm, I work and because of the way I operate, my kingdom is not of this world. There's a, there's a broader perspective involved here. But notice that even though Jesus is spiritual, yet he, from the very beginning, had political implications in who he was, which is why on the cross it said, Jesus, King of the Jews. Now, this is essential if we're going to engage in this topic. So here's the first point in case you're keeping track. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And what that means is he critiques the left and he critiques the right. Scott Sauls, who wrote the book, A Gentle Answer, Our Secret, Secret Weapon in the Age of us against them, said it this way. If it's harder for people to discern if you're a follower of Jesus than it is if you're a Republican or a Democrat, then you've probably missed the mark. If people know your political affiliation before they can know your spiritual affiliation, then there's a problem. And in fact, the reality is Jesus is too conservative for progressives and he's too progressive for conservatives. You see, and what I mean by that is because He sees corruption in individuals and the need to make personal choices, something that would fit more in the traditional conservative emphasis, but he also sees the corruption in systems and structures and injustice that would typically fit in the progressive one and says it's not an either or, it's a both and. So the point is, the question that we have to ask ourselves is which is informing which? Is my faith informing my politics or is my politics informing my faith? 
Now, the scripture gives us insight into the stakes of how we think about this, and we see Jesus modeled this even in his own crew. See, if you look at a cursory glance of the disciples, you'll see that he had conservatives and liberals both in his camp. Matthew was a tax collector. He was one that would have been considered a sellout by his people. He's one that you, when you read the New Testament, you see they're like, whoa, the worst thing in the world for you to be as a Jewish person was a tax collector because that meant that even as Jerusalem and Judea was under the heel and under the foot and under the oppressive regime of the Romans, you're actually helping them by taxing our money, our Jewish hard-earned money, and giving it to these Gentiles who are oppressing us. And Jesus says, come follow me. Come follow me, Matthew. But then if you look further down, you also see there's a brother named Simon the Zealot. Now the Zealots were, they, that, was, that, was, that was your crowd that was about that business. They were about revolution. They were about overthrowing the government by any means necessary. They were violent and they, and they took out Romans. And, 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 and Jesus says to them, come follow me. And even the apostle Paul has a checkered history. And, and what he wrote in, in to one of the most diverse churches we see in the New Testament in Ephesus is really helpful and instrumental, not just in understanding about politics, but the Christian life in general. In Ephesians chapter four, verse 14, it says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now, Paul in the context is, and, and he's referring to this emphasis of unity. If you look at the previous verses in the, in the chapter, he's saying, look, that God has distributed gifts among his body, but that we're one body, there's one faith, one Lord, and one baptism. We need to be unified. And in that process, in that diversity, he's given us different perspectives that we need each other. But when we don't have that, when we have division, then what that causes is, is, is us to be susceptible to every wind of doctrine, every wind and wave, like we're on a boat in the middle of a storm. And he gives us a warning of what happens otherwise. It's a picture of a person who does not know where to find the source of truth in life, who repeatedly is being duped by charlatans and tricksters. Well, what does that have to do with politics? I'm glad you asked. Point two, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. So we have to do some hashtag fact checking. You ever notice the fact checkers, right? They, they, they come after the debate and they, and they hear what's happening. And it was like, well, you know, uh, Vice, former Vice President Biden, he said this, it was mostly true, but here, here it wasn't true. When, when Trump said this, it was mostly false, but this, and vice versa. And they just go line by line, precept by precept, and see and evaluate, not based on their own particular horse in the race, but based on the words that they said, is it true or false? And oftentimes, we just go right by that and just go straight to, uh, it feels a certain way, I, I, so I'm just going to share it. <laughs> we all have family members, right? You, you know those forwards that you get, those forwards on Facebook, you know, from, from that, you know, that auntie, that cousin, that, you know, that Mark Zuckerberg is giving out iPhones to whoever replies to this message, right? You know, like the, like the you know, the, the 5G is the true cause of coronavirus type. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I have this side ministry of going and looking up on Snopes and being like, okay, here's the hoax, here's the link to it. Please stop forwarding in this. 
But here's, but, but here's where it relates to politics. Uh, even the, the House Intelligence Committee, looking at the uh, Russian interference in elections in uh, 2016, showed this, that there were over 3,500 Facebook and Instagram ads with things like back the badge. And when you looked at back the badge, you, you would see, okay, this is a group that is uh, like Blue Lives Matter that is supporting the police and, and it will enter in comments and content that would stir up uh, issues against protesters. And, and you would think, okay, this is what this group is about. But then on the other hand, the same source was organizing groups like blacktivists, and they would say things about the police, and they would talk about this, you know, conspiracies and corruption. And, and the thing is, it was all done by the same organization. The same people were creating both ads. Why? To sow confusion, disinformation, and discord. And people were just clicking on it. Over millions of Americans saw it, and the whole goal was to get people to be disengaged in the electoral process. Political parties and interest groups spend millions of dollars on research and messaging to influence your opinion and to cause certain reactions. Tossed to and fro by the waves. You see, government is God's idea, but politics is man's idea. Deception half-truths, misleading statements, and information is all part of politics as we see it play out. And it's not just foreign interference. The debate just this past week revealed the deep polarization, the attacks, and the lack of civility and divisive nature of American politics. And sadly, the church has not been exempt from this. We've seen ministers and Christian university leaders use their platforms to sound more like politicians than pastors. But the word shows us another way. Right after that contrast of saying, don't be tossed to and fro, Paul goes on to say, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up. Stop being immature. Stop falling for every idea that you hear and it's like, okay, well, this is what the cool kids are saying, so now I need to believe this. This is what they're saying and the people I like and grew up with, so now I need to believe that and actually look in the context. Now, in the context, Paul is talking about how to walk with Christ and instead of being tossed to and fro, how to actually speak the truth and love. Now, in the original language that Paul wrote in, which is Greek, it gives us an added insight into this. Because you see, the word truth there is a verb. <laughs> now, we don't really have the concept of truth as a verb, and so the, 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 the translators did the best they did, could by saying speaking the truth, but really it would be translated literally truthing in love. Truthing in love has to do more than just with speaking, but acting as well. He's saying speak and act in love. Speak and act the truth in love, that there's a way in not just what we say, but also in how we conduct ourselves that is supposed to be a revelation of what it looks like to be truthful and loving at the same time. And that's hard for most of us to do. Most of us like one side of the fence or the other. We, we, we like truth, some of us. We like to tell the truth and we don't really care how it, gets, it lands on somebody. We don't really care how it necessarily feels to somebody. We just like, that's the truth. We know those, that might be you. 
Or there's people who like, just like, you know, it's, it's all about love and I, don't, I really just want to be conflict avoided and not really deal with com- complexity and so I'm just going to go along and get along. But the reality of speaking the truth in love, of, of speaking and acting the truth in love means that we have to understand this thing called complexity. See, children see things as black and white. You know, that's the difference between going from infancy to maturity. I remember when uh, our daughter, uh, Ariana, when she was younger, she was about, you know, four years old and she was learning how to read and she was learning like phonics, right? And how to sound out words. And, and we went past this one pharmacy and she was like, oh, look, look, dad, it's Kivis. And I was like, what are you talking about? It's Kivis. And I looked up, I was like, oh, you mean CVS. No, she's like, no, 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 no. I, uh, my teacher taught me how to sound out the words. It's k, see, it's k, vis, kivis. <laughs> and she didn't believe me when I was trying to explain. Well, see, that, that principle is true. However, sometimes there's abbreviations and you just say each letter and it was just like, no, it was just black and white. But we have to embrace complexity because as you get older, you realize, yeah, they're, they're not, the rules don't always apply the same way. And history teaches that as well, that neither of these parties ultimately represent what God is ultimately trying to do in the world by themselves. And Fannie Lou Hamer is one of my heroes of the faith, and she reveals this. Fannie Lou Hamer was born in Mississippi in the early 1900s. She was the 20th and last child of two sharecroppers. In 1961, she went uh, for an operation because she wasn't feeling well and received what they were referred to as a Mississippi appendectomy. You see, it was a time in which uh, eugenicists and people were trying to slow down and stop the black population from spreading. And so they would go and actually forcefully, without women's knowledge, give them hysterectomies, completely removing their ability to give children forced sterilizations. So Hamer was no longer able to have children. And as she began to realize the remedies that needed to happen in order to change the situations, the poverty that her and her family grew up in, that there needed to be a sense of of civic engagement. Because you see, in Mississippi, about half the population was black, but they were systemically disenfranchised by intimidation tactics. And so even as she went to uh, register the vote, they ended up telling her, uh, the sharecropper who owned the land, a white man, he, he fired her. Then uh, when she still wasn't listening and still organized trips to get groups of people to voting, police stopped her, beat her up to the point where she had a blood clot in her eye for the remainder of her life, had serious injuries and wounds, wound, and, and, and she still kept going. But check this, in 1964, She challenged the Democratic Party's efforts to block black participation because even though at that point the Democrats were more on board, especially in the North with integration, in the South, which was still predominantly Democratic at the time, they were still very much segregationist and they didn't want to lose all those votes. And so they kept even the the, the black participation separate. And she went against that system as well. Now, this is what... Fannie Lou Hamer had to say, she said, you can pray until you faint, but unless you get up and try to do something, God is not going to put it in your lap. She's saying, look, the, the, the truth is you got to do something. You, if you want to see the world around you change we, and, and you don't want to keep it in, this, in the same oppressive way, then you have to do something. But she also said, I feel sorry 
for anybody that could let hate wrap them up. I ain't got no such thing as hate and ain't no such thing as I can have hate in, the, in anybody and hope to see God. She was like, look, I can't hope to see God and still have hate and bitterness. So even what she went through medically, invasively, as well as the physical, she realized that, look, that ultimately my plan and my aims and her challenge was not just to Republicans. It was the Democrats who were racist in her own party. So that was 50 years ago. Fanny didn't fit neatly into any of these boxes progressive or conservative. She saw the value of life and, and what that meant and the systems trying to remove and eradicate black people from growing and having babies. And if people scratch their head and they're trying to figure out, well, wait a minute, uh, where do you fit in this thing? Good. Because the reality is both sides can be selectively pro-life. The right can talk about life in the womb is precious, but at the same time, when you see people who are systematically being killed by the police, all of a sudden we quiet. We tend to frame this issue as, well, I gotta support the police, so that means I have to ignore everything that's happening in the streets. But they're not the only ones doing that. The left can say, yo, black lives matter, but somehow when that black life is eight months in someone's womb, that doesn't count. And so the reality is, if we're really following what Jesus is saying in his word, then we don't fit into any of these categories. We will recognize the maternal mortality rates in the black community and understand the poverty and the issues that, that come into decisions that have to deal with life and death. But we'll also say, look, we'll hold up a standard to say this is what God's ideal is and we're gonna fight for change both internally and externally to make these things happen because these parties are fallible. They, will go, they ain't gonna follow us in heaven, praise God. And they often offer false choices. One check for you, just, a, just an internal check. Can you name six things that's wrong with the party that you tend to align with? Or do you tend to see them as absolute? There's a new book out from uh, Justin Gibney and Michael Ware and um, Chris Butler from the Ann Campaign called Compassion and Conviction. And they say, they ask these questions, do you advocate for social justice or family values? Do you support women or are you against abortion? Do you love the poor or do you believe in personal responsibility? Don't answer those questions or at least not the way that they're asked. They're based on a false premise and thus form for Christians a false dilemma. One of the reasons we get to these false dilemmas is this one-dimensional politics. One-dimensional politics, you only look at one issue and say, depending on this issue, this is the only thing I care about and I vote for. And we create a curated reality. You know, curate, you know that cura, curated, everybody likes to do curated stuff now, right? Like your playlist is curated by your favorite artist and, and, you know, and, and, and everything. But what it does is creates echo chambers where I only hear from and see anybody who agrees with me and I cancel anyone else. We tend to be more concerned with, uh, do we follow them or, or do they follow us? But the real question is, are we following Jesus? Yes. See, multi-dimensional advocacy responds to the real. It gives space for compassion and the need for our leaders to grow and the need and the importance of praying for them as well. In 1 Timothy 2, uh, verses one through three, it says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 
We demonstrate according to Jesus who said, love your enemies, that love when we pray. Can I be real? It's tough sometimes to listen to that and to apply that. This week it was difficult because after Tuesday, we can almost forget that that's that, that was this week. There was some more news that came. Thursday night, after months of minimizing the pandemic, supporting unsubstantiated cures like injecting bleach into yourself, calling it by a name that stigmatized Asian Americans, admitting that he knew the dangers of the virus in February, but continued to obfuscate and even reject the instruction of his own medical advisors and downplaying the virus, I open up to Twitter and see the president has reportedly contracted the coronavirus. Now, I wish I was spiritual enough to tell you that, especially living in New York and seeing the damage that it is wrought even in our own congregation, that my immediate reaction to seeing such news was to fall on my knees and pray to God for healing, but that was not it. Oh, I indulged in a few memes first. And some last, I, I decided to enjoy the poetic irony and justice of the fact that after months and months of rejecting any of these knowledges that would help people change people's behavior, that now you will fall susceptible to the same thing. And then it was funny because last night we watched the movie, The Count of Monte Cristo. It's a movie in which this man is experiencing a lot of personal uh, just betrayals by people in power. And, and as he's about to go on a revenge tour, his, his mentor, a priest, says, don't turn into what put you here. He says, look, I, I know you've experienced some difficult things, but don't let the thing that, that hate that puts you here consume you. And so I realized that 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, it doesn't care who's in office, it just said pray for them. And I don't get to pick and choose. See, the less emotionally tied we are to a party and the more emotionally tied we are to the causes of Christ, the more likely it is that we can speak the truth in love. But here's a warning, here's a real, this is not just up in the clouds. When we become those kind of people, it will confuse some. We will be at odds with the loudest voices in the room. It will cause us to even feel homeless. Well, why bother? Let me move quickly with this. Uh, Michael Ware said, I believe politics is a forum for loving your neighbor. As much as people like to talk about the issue of third party uh, voting and how six million Americans uh, voted for third parties and in light of how close the election was, that that could, was a deciding thing. What people don't tend to talk about is that there were a hundred million people who didn't vote at all. More than almost double of which voted for either candidate. Now, what Michael Ware would say is that elections are about showing love for our neighbor and thinking about what's going to be in the ultimate best interests of our nation. And it's not even just about a presidential election. Here in the state of New York, 86 out of 99 district seats are up for election. Nationally, 35 Senate seats, all 435 congressional seats. Do you realize slavery ended because of a political vote in government? Women's suffrage, also possible because people were able to change the laws who were in power. The Civil Rights Acts were policy because of pressure put on politicians. Before you decide, I don't need to be involved and engaged in this process, just look at the history and see how we got here to a world in which you can freely go to whatever university that you can choose to or go to any restaurant and establishment that you want to. That happened because of civic engagement. So the fourth point is vote. 
Go to vote.org if you're not sure if you're registered. You can actually register online. The deadline is February, I mean, Lord, it's Friday. <laughs> Misinformation. The deadline is Friday, October 9th, this Friday. Please make sure. Now, voting is essential, but it's the starting line, not the finish line. There's aspects of getting involved, and even here in our church, between the Ann campaign and uh, the New York City chapter, which I'm involved with, or Pray March Act, which our lead pastor James has launched, that it gives us opportunity to put feet to our faith. We're not saying that this current reality, that there aren't things to be angry about. We're saying that it's important to attack problems, not people, and to be in our anger, not to sin. The cool thing was, speaking the truth in love does require confrontation. A couple years after that incident happened with the email when I was in Indiana, I sensed God calling me to confront and reach out to that brother again and, and say, you know what? Even if we never agree about our political views, what we can agree on is that Jesus is the king and we need to pray for his kingdom. The cool thing was he asked, yo, man, I've been meaning to actually contact you and I'm so glad you did. You see, I've been thinking about what you were saying about systemic injustice and I realized that you were right. And in fact, I have now been trying to tell my friends who tend to reject the reality of these things, the fact that no, they're real and we're coming from a perspective that we just haven't experienced it ourselves. The funny thing is I wouldn't even known that he had a change of heart and he apologized for what he had written unless I had gone back and approached him. And in the same way, we need to be reminded in this season about the importance of praying for God's kingdom. So I want us to out loud right now. There was a prayer that when the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray, he, one of the key components of that prayer was to a reminder of the fact that the ultimate kingdom that we are fighting for is not of this world. We know it is the Lord's prayer. And I want to invite you to, to everyone to, under the sound of my voice to say it aloud with me as we are reminded of what the stakes are, not just November 3rd, but for the rest of our lives. Let's pray out loud. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.